Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Hi there, everybody. This is Heidi Keeler, your host of RN Huddle. Welcome to another riveting program we have planned for you. We're continuing our series on the legality of nursing, and this will be our final conversation on this topic. And, you know, one of the things that we'll be talking about today is why, even though you can do everything right, things just go wrong in our practice. Like, for example, what happens when you give clear and meaningful instruction or care planning or uh, treatments to a client and then they blatantly don't do it? They they go off on their own, they make their own choices and their own decisions, and then something might happen with that patient and they end up uh, with a poor outcome. You know what, they, they can still take legal action. And so what can we do as nurses to understand this situation, to come up with some strategies to alleviate the situation? What can we do? So continuing the discussion, Dr. Joyce Black and attorney Katie Cheadle will discuss what happens when you do everything right and things still go wrong. Without further ado, let's listen to today's discussion. This is Joyce Black at the University of Nebraska College of Nursing. I'm a professor within the College of Nursing, and I'm accompanied today by Katie Cheadle. A defense attorney here in Omaha. Katie specializes in medical malpractice defense, defending nurses, doctors, therapists, and the like when patients sue them. Well, here's a couple humdinger cases, Katie. I got to talk to you about these patients. Um, these are patients that years ago we would have used the word non-compliant. Now, today that's not the word we use, but the concept is the same. These are Patients who have been told umpteen thousand times, let me just put that in for a little emphasis here, not to do something, and they do it anyway. So here's case number one. It's a little old lady, uh, pretty significant Alzheimer's disease. She has a pressure injury on her sacrum, so we want her to be on her sides to get off of her sacrum. We turn her to her side. We prop her up with pillows. This is a lady who doesn't seem to really understand what's going on around her. We come back in in 15 minutes. She has pulled the pillows out and is laying on her back. So that's case number one. Let me do case number two. Case number two is, um, oh gosh, he's, he's maybe in his late 50s. It's a man with MS. He's confined to an electric wheelchair. He's got pressure ulcers on the sitting bones at the bottom of his butt and he's got a foot wound from banging into the doorway. We can't get that thing to heal. He goes outside and smokes. When he smokes, it makes the healing of his wounds worse. He sits in his wheelchair outside and smokes, so he's sitting on his pressure ulcers, pressure injuries. We have talked to him a lot about, you can't do this, you're making it worse, and he says, I don't care. You can't tell me what to do. Well, listening to you before, I presume, and maybe I'm wrong, that they could both sue us 
for these pressure injuries that formed. Am I right? And if they can sue us, come on, they're responsible for this, or at least partly responsible. They're hurting themselves. So what do we do? Well, you're right. <laughs> they can sue you. And that's, you know, pretty pretty straightforward in Nebraska anyway, and in many states. Anybody can sue anybody at any time for any reason. There doesn't have to be any merit to it. Some states do require in medical malpractice cases that there be an affidavit attached showing merit to the case before the court will allow it to be filed. But in many cases, anybody can pay a fee and file a lawsuit. Uh, so this, nothing I say here will necessarily prevent a lawsuit. What we can do, though, is give ourselves the best defense in case one is filed. And with respect to the, the first patient you spoke about, um, the Alzheimer's little old lady, the big concern with that is the Alzheimer's. In patients who are non-compliant or AMA or, or whatever you want to categorize them or classify them as, the best solution that we have found legally is education that we have done everything reasonably to educate the patient so that they were able to make an educated decision to pursue whatever course of action they wanted to. What we hear in the AMA patient is, I didn't know, no one told me this was going to happen, and so I wouldn't have gone against it had I known. Had I known X, I would have listened. I would have done something differently. Uh, that's the rebuttal we hear with the AMA or non-compliant patient. So what we do then is document that we did educate them and that regardless of the education, they continued to go down this route. Patients have free will. We cannot force a patient to do anything. I can't, I can diagnose a patient and tell them you've got high blood pressure and if you don't take this medication, you run a high risk of stroke and that patient can say, I don't want to take it. And then they can have a stroke. You know, I, we can't force medication down a patient's throat. We can't force a patient to get on the operating room table. We can't do any of that. So patients have free will. Our responsibility is to reasonably educate them so that they are making informed decisions. Now with a demented patient, such as the one you started with, the Alzheimer's patient, that's a much more difficult task because you can't really rely on an education plan that was that is being used only to educate a demented patient. They aren't competent to understand what you're educating them on. So in those patients, we have to think a little bit more creatively, work a little bit more outside the box. We have to take reasonable steps to educate maybe the family. If we've got family coming in, demented patients tend to listen more to family members if they are the ones telling them. They tend to be more uncomfortable, more distrusting of people they don't know. So when we've got a, a daughter or a sister or a, um, even a mom, if it's a, a minor child, telling the patient you need to move, they will listen more often. If if they don't have family or anyone there to help them, we can try to have a sitter in the room to help them or at least to notify the nurse if if the patient has now taken the pillows off and has moved some way to notify the nurse. Maybe we can increase our rounds from hourly to every half hour. Um, it, it really it depends on the patient and the circumstances, but what we do need to do in that patient is 
think a little bit more outside the box on our care plan and our education plan for that patient. With the second patient, (laughs) the completely competent uh, gentleman who insists on smoking despite it injuring his wounds, or at least inhibiting his wound healing, Again, we can't force anybody to do anything. We can't force someone to quit smoking. We have smokers in and out the doors all the time that we give information to on how to how to quit smoking, and, and they don't want it. You can tell them it causes lung cancer. They don't want to quit smoking. So we can't stop that, and we can't have a gentleman who insists on sitting on his pressure ulcers move if he doesn't want to. He's competent, and we can educate him. The rebuttal we will get from him is that, well, I wasn't told. I wasn't told smoking caused a problem with my wound healing. I wasn't I wasn't informed of this. And so we need to make sure our charting shows not only was he, but he was informed maybe in multiple methods, maybe we maybe as as an institution or a clinic setting or whatever um you're in that you develop some type of documentation to actually have the patient sign off on the education. Maybe it is um paging a resident or a physician to come do an educational consult to talk through with the patient so that they can get a full and complete informed consent of the decisions that they're making and the consequences or potential consequences of those decisions. So what we can do and what I think is the best from a legal perspective is document, document, document the education given so that the person that goes AMA can't successfully rebut that they didn't know. So you think in the guy with MS, we should have him sign that he received the education or what? Because we've educated him. I mean, we've told him over and over again, you shouldn't. I mean, it could be 30 below zero and he's sitting out on the sun porch smoking his cigarettes. We've we've talked to him about it. I know it's in our nurse's notes because it'll say in the education section, educated on the hazards of smoking, but he keeps doing it. I mean, I guess we could say he's addicted to his cigarettes, but I'm concerned about his wound healing story. Right. So I'm saying that is one of many reasonable methods that an institution could take to demonstrate education. I understand that the chart, especially EHRs now have a built-in tab on education care plans. Which is which is fine. That's sufficient. I don't know that you have to do more than that. I don't think the standard of care requires you to do more than that. My suggestion is giving yourself the best legal defense would be to go above and beyond that because it's going to come down to your word versus their word um, in a in trial. And the patient will say, "I was not told that. I I didn't know that. I wasn't educated on that. Nobody told me." Because what we argue is, we told you, and you didn't do it anyway. And so you got yourself into this mess. You caused your own injuries here. And the patient will say, well, I didn't know that. Had I known that, I wouldn't have done it. And what we then have as a defense is your charting or your memory. But the chances of a practitioner remembering a discussion they had with a patient several years ago uh, is very slim. So what we really rely on is your charting. The best defenses that we see are when we've got charting outside of that care plan with an AMA patient. We have extra charting. We have a physician consult called to discuss AMA. I have a physician who comes in and charts the discussion he or she had or dictates it in detail to show that I did talk to the patient. 
we've got nurses elaborating on the education plan or inserting notes into the system in the narrative section of specific conversations they had and even putting quotes around the patient's response. Those are the types of charting entries that I think give the best defense. It's not impossible to defend. Otherwise, it's just giving yourself the best defense that you can. So you think in the demented patient, since she doesn't have the ability to recall what we teach her, we need to work with the family to help them understand that what she's doing could hurt herself? Is that what you're, or stop the wound from healing? I, if the family is available, absolutely. I think with a demented patient, you just need to be more creative in your education care plan than your typical patient. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's a, a patient that would understand if we just put signs up that remind them. You know, maybe they're a, a long-term memory patient, but not a short-term memory patient. Maybe if they saw a sign that said, call the nurse before you get out of bed, or stay on your right side. Or maybe we have a sign that we can put on the right side of the bed and then one we can put on the left side of the bed. Or maybe it's as simple as finding a TV that can move to the left side of the bed or the right side of the bed so that they aren't inclined to roll over. Um, it, It just is a matter of thinking more creatively with our care plans when we have AMA patients. And it's not just from a legal defense perspective, but from an overall patient care perspective that we're doing you know, what we reasonably can to to assist them and prevent them from injuring themselves further. It's just that the family tends to be able to persuade demented patients more than the nurse or even the physician. Um, so it, it just is a matter of trying to be creative in your care plan and then making sure that you document what you do um, that was creative, that was thinking outside the box, because it's not just for your own defense, but for the next nurse on shift, so that when he or she comes on, they know this worked or this didn't work or this was tried, and and so that we can keep working with it, keep growing with it, so that hopefully we can come up with a care plan that is is really working for that patient. That's a good idea. Thank you for that. This is Joyce Black at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, talking to Katie Cheadle a defense attorney here in Omaha, about how to help non-compliant, non-adherent patients uh, participate uh, in their care and how to look at them from an education perspective. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's go ahead and take a, a minute to digest what we've just listened to. You know, the thought of being sued is never a good thing. And, you know, as nurses, we never like to see bad outcomes with our patients or our clients, but sometimes that happens. And and sometimes that next step happens as well, where bad situations happen and clients end up suing. So looking at these situations through a legal perspective, listening to the dialogue between our experts, I know it really has uh, improved my understanding of this situation, and hopefully you've been able to pick up some information that is relevant to you as well. You know, with this episode six, we are concluding our discussions about legality and nursing, and I can't wait to bring our next topics to you, so be sure to come back to RN Huddle during our next broadcast and see what we have in store for you, what hot topic we'll bring to the table next time. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. 
To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.